66 books in the Bible. How many revelations? One. The revelation of Jesus. It is all about Jesus. We study it to see and understand and know Jesus. The focus is on Him. I'm going to pick it up back in verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm going to read the entire letter to Pergamos. As we studied it on Wednesday night, we have a few things we need to address and we're going to finish out that study this morning. Even if you weren't here Wednesday, we'll bring you up to speed. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, The one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality." So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on it, written on the stone, which no one knows. But he who receives it. Father, oh, I just love this. So cool, so enigmatic. Uh, truly, Lord, there's some mystery here, and, and I pray for revelation of these things. I ask that you will engage us in the teaching in your word and by your spirit. I pray that you will teach us. We ask every time we open your word that, Holy Spirit, you would be our rabbi, that we might learn of you and the things you want us to hear and to know. You have that amazing ability of looking into every single heart here. I barely know what's going on in my own heart, Lord Jesus, but you know us all. And you look into each heart and you speak what we need. And I pray every single person will hear what they need to hear this morning from your lips and by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Of all the things that can amp up children around this time of year, around the Christmas holidays, are wrapped and secret packages. Presents that they don't know what they are. Now, parents, I'm going to warn you, the kids know size and shape. They're pretty good at these things. Now, as a kid, one of the big things that we asked for at Christmas time was record albums. We always knew. Exactly what that was, you know. And my parents would find ways of, of disguising it or reshaping it, and I had more broken records at Christmas than I can remember. But kids are asking already, thinking, what's it gonna be underneath that tree? Listen, God is a giver of good gifts. He loves to give gifts to his children, to his people. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? You know, Jesus is not trying to be offensive when He says, If you who are evil can give good things. But He's making a point, drawing a contrast between our state, which tends to be sick and sinful and to to veer into evil. Even in that state, we still know how to do good things. We can still give good gifts, but He's saying, oh, how much more your Heavenly Father who is good 
He is good. That, that's His nature. How much more does He know how to give good gifts? Ephesians 4.8 tells us, Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Or 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. James 1.17 tells us, Every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above. Listen, if you're looking for, if you're searching for the perfect gift this holiday season, you're not going to find it on earth. Every good gift given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Great is His faithfulness. Amen? And God loves to give. He is a giver of good things. And so here we have in Jesus' postscript to Pergamos, at the end of the letter, three wrapped gifts. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Three gifts. I say wrapped gifts because we read this and we have to ask the question, what are these really? What does this mean? This is somewhat enigmatic. You know, mysterious, esoteric, if you will. Jesus paints this picture of these three marvelous, wonderful gifts, and I say, what are they? We're going to take a closer look at them this morning. Hold them up to the light, you know. See if we can see through the wrapping. Maybe maybe shake the boxes a little and try and get some idea of what these three gifts are. But, before we get there, we need to back up and get a little context. In Revelation 1.19, as we have read many times, therefore write the things which you have seen, which was? Keep going. I mean, I, I, you glorified Lord. Thank you. Jesus glorified. Let's just get this down, okay? Because we're, we're a little weak on this, this far into the study. When I say... Therefore, write the things which you have seen. What had John seen? You say, Jesus glorified. We'll make it easy. Got it? Okay. Write the things which you have seen. What had John seen? You're so good. You're spot on. Well done. And he says, ready? The things which are. What's that? The church. The church age. Either one is the right answer. Well done. He had seen Jesus glorified and now he's writing the things which are the church age. John was in the church age. We are still in the church age. He was at the beginning. We're here at the end. But it's still the church age. Write about these things. And we have the seven letters to the seven churches, which you know are really seven letters to one church. The church. Seven historical letters, right? Seven corporate letters, and that they apply to every church reading and studying them. Seven prophetical letters, and that each letter covers a span, an epoch, if you will, of church history. And seven personal letters for everyone who is a part of the church. These letters speak that we might grow and learn and and. Listen in here. He, of course, then says, and then I want you to write the things which will take place after these things. That will pick up in chapter 4. won't even deal with that this morning. But right now we are in the things which are the church age. And in the things which are, we come to this church in Asia Minor, Western Turkey, in the first century, this letter written to the church at Pergamos. 
Wednesday night, we arrived at Pergamos, the citadel city of Pergamos. You see, it was perched up on a hill. Pergus Gamos means elevated marriage. Perched up there on that hill, looking 15 miles back to the Aegean Sea, back toward Smyrna, which is right on the coast, but they could see the sparkling blue Aegean Sea from Pergamos. Of course, they called it Pergus Gamos, Pergamos, and yet Pergamos means objectionable marriage. Oh, they saw it as an elevated marriage. Jesus said, no, I object to this marriage. Why would he object to the marriage? Because of what was taking place in Pergamos historically, but also in Pergamos prophetically. Historically, Pergamos was the planting ground of the oldest pagan religion in history. That is Mystery Babylon. We will hear more about Mystery Babylon further into our study of Revelation. But it was seated in Pergamos. From Pergamos it made its way to Rome. And Rome and Pergamos were the two capitals, if you will, of that ancient Babylonian mystery religion. Historical Pergamos truly was what Jesus called the throne of Satan, where Satan dwells. Several temples there to pagan gods, to Zeus and, and, and to others, you know, to Asclepios, the god of medicine, where we get our word, by the way, scalpel, comes from Asclepios. The symbol of the god of medicine was a serpent wrapped around a pole, which is exactly what we see in medicine still today. All of this stuff going on in Pergamos, Jesus planted his church right there, and his church was beginning to compromise, and to that Jesus says, I object. I object to any marriage of any church with the culture, to look like the culture, to embrace the paganistic tendencies and the idolatry that was there in Pergamos. I object to this, he says. But even more so, more than historically, prophetically, from John's perspective, if you launch forward to about the 4th century A.D., something began to happen in the church. And Pergamos reflected the entire church from about the 4th to the 7th century. See, around 312 with the rise of Emperor Constantine, and we covered all this a little more specifically on Wednesday night, but with that rise, by the end of the 4th century, we saw for the first time in history the Roman church state. That is, Christianity was the religion of Rome. Incredible that this faith that at one time was so persecuted and so hated by the state, Rome, that it would now get in bed with Rome. The very nation that persecuted the church now became a partner with the church and the church a partner with Rome. And so that state church began to rise. And so the church itself, Christianity, entered a long season of political and as we'll see even more Wednesday night, pagan compromise. Compromise was the issue with Pergamos. Christian faith, like Romish paganism, began to be Shrouded in mystery. You know our faith is not mysterious. Not intended to be. Our faith is a faith that is revealed. Jesus said, if you walk in the light as He is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. You know, we are a church that is honest and open about what we believe, about who we follow, about what He did. This is no mystery. What we talk about is explainable and understandable and clear. Revealed. As in Revelation. But the church started to look at some of these pagan things and go, hey, that's interesting. That's kind of cool. 
hey, we can, we can make this more mysterious. The common people don't need to know so much. And so power even began to rise up over the common people. You know, he says, you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Nico's power, Laetans, laity, the people, power over the people. And so the priesthood began to rise in Christianity, which until only had one high priest, Jesus Christ. Only had one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. He's our mediator. He's the only one we go through. Again, simple, plain, revealed, and clear. But it began to become mysterious. Christian worship began to recast idolatry to fit Christian purposes. And amulets and and idols and, and images began to be introduced into Christian faith that was never there, never intended Now, 300, 400 years in, these things are starting to happen. Christian practice transferred allegiance from pagan gods and icons, not to Jesus, that would be fine, but to saints and angels and Mary. Suddenly people began to pray to and through the saints, to and through the angels or Mary. Interesting, Pergamos began in the church what we could call the corruption of compromise. Give a little. Give a little more. Compromise a little more and the next thing you know, you've given over completely. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul said, do not be bound together with unbelievers. He doesn't say ignore unbelievers, hate unbelievers, do nothing with unbelievers. He says don't be bound. Don't tie yourself to the unbeliever for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness what harmony has Christ with Belial what has an unbeliever in common with or a believer in common with an unbeliever what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God just as God has said Exodus 29:45 I will dwell in them and walk among them or Leviticus 26 verse 12 I will be their God and they shall be my people and then Isaiah 52:11 Paul quotes he says therefore come out from their midst be separate says the Lord and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me says the Lord almighty compromise runs head to head with that very premise God says I want you devoted to me not to other people not to pastors not to priests Not to saints, not to angels, not to Mary, but to Jesus Christ, a pure, simple, revealed faith. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I was so thankful Cameron Lee brought that to me this last week. Blessed are the pure in heart. And so absolutely true. That's, That's, by the way, the single answer to compromise. A pure heart, an undivided heart. One who singularly loves Jesus Christ. But when we start to incorporate these other things, these other ways of worship and other means of getting to God, we compromise faith. We do what began in Pergamos and really took off in Thyatira. And we'll talk about that on Wednesday. But we need to deal with something before we deal with the gifts here at the end of the letter. On Wednesday night, I shared a few things that, well, for some of you, your Merry Christmas became a messy Christmas. 
a messy Christmas. Why? Well, we began to trace a few pagan origins of our beloved holiday Christmas. No one wants to do that. Let's just not talk about it. Let's ignore it and maybe it'll go away. Well, it doesn't go away, especially the fact that the Yule log is pagan. That the word Yule comes from the Chaldean word for child. It's the child log. Yuletide by the fireside was the worship of a child named Tammuz. Tammuz, his name you'll find in the Jewish calendar to this very day. Why? Because their calendar was developed in Babylon. Tammuz, the miracle child, so-called, of two people, a man by the name of Nimrod and his wife Semiramis. You might say, hot rod and semi-conscious, what are you talking about? (laughs) Nimrod and Semiramis. Nimrod's name you can find in the scriptures in Genesis 10, for he is the founder of what? Anyone know? Babel. Nimrod founded Babel. Nimrod is the father of ancient paganism. He was a mighty hunter, the Bible tells us, against the Lord. He has set his face against the Lord, all up in God's face. That's Nimrod. And he introduced paganism, and his wife, Semiramis, queen of Babel, you might call her. And the story, as it goes, they founded this ancient mystery religion. And it's even mentioned in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14, He brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, the Jerusalem temple, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Why are they weeping for Tammuz in the temple court of God's temple there in Jerusalem? It was pagan worship. Yuletide by the fireside. What does that mean? The Yuletide, the idea behind it, the Yule, the child log. Well, the child was Tammuz. What happened was... This miracle child. Well, first of all, let me back up. And I, I shared much, much of this on Wednesday. I'm not going to give as much right now, but you've got to get the context. The child log. Because, see, Nimrod was away either at war or hunting, and he was killed. Semiramis stands up and says, oh, Miraculously, I'm pregnant. And she gives birth to Tammuz. Tammuz dies. And miraculously comes back to life, resurrects. That's the very simple version of this, of this mystery story that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. Well, the Yule log was the worship of the miracle child and they would burn this log because the child died. But what they would do is after burning the log, the next day they would go out into the forest and they'd cut down a tree and they'd prop it up and worship it as the rebirth of Tammuz. Seeing as I just ordered a new pre-lit Christmas tree on Amazon, we got to figure this out. <laughs> you hear that and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, this is pagan in origin? I'm putting up a pagan tree? Every, I mean, maybe you've heard that somewhere whisper and you're like, <laughs> just ignore that, I like my Christmas tree. What's the deal here? Jeremiah chapter 10, we quoted this on Wednesday as well, verse 3, says the customs of the peoples are delusion. Because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool, they decorate it with silver and with gold, they fasten it with nails and with hammers, so that it will not totter. Wow. God was decrying pagan worship, idolatry. Wait, Rick, are you saying, is that a Christmas tree? Is Jeremiah prophesying against a Christmas tree? You know what? When you read the verse, it is probably carved wooden idols. 
They are the work of a craftsman. He hammers it with silver and with gold. In other words, hammered gold or or plated silver on top of these wooden idols. It was idol worship. It was idolatry that's being talked about. But let me ask you, just so we can clarify some things right up front, how many of you, show of hands, worship your Christmas tree as an idol? Just waiting to see it. Okay, nobody. That's good. That's a good thing. Anyone uh, engage in singing Christmas carols to Tammuz? No? Okay. All right. We also talked about how the church co-opted the pagan festivals of Saturnalia, the winter solstice, with the Christ Mass. Christ Mass. You know what Mass means in its Latin form? Sent. Sent. Christ sent. I actually kind of like that. We're not going to start a Mass, don't worry, this year. Maybe next. No, I'm kidding. But the Christ Mass, the Christ sent, that, that's a, it's an admirable sentiment. But people will say, okay, but is that co-opting paganism? The, the celebration of Christmas instead of, or at the same time as the winter solstice, the celebration of Christian uh, Christmas instead of Saturnalia, are we absorbing Christian festivals into Christianity? Well, listen, they did. They did in the 4th, 5th, 6th century. Are we today? Is that what's going on here with Christmas? And some will ask these questions. Think about the Christmas tree and the other symbols and the, and the log and the fire and the carols and everything else. And they'll say, you know, I just can't celebrate Christmas because of the pagan roots. I understand. There are those who just hate the crass commercialism of Christmas. I asked my daughter Naomi yesterday. Sweetheart, what, what would you like for Christmas this year? And she said, you know, Dad, I think cash. Cash. I'm like, even my daughter's gone commercial. Cash. Cold hard cash. I'm like, what denominations would you like that? And she's like, 500. Do they have thousands? I'm like, <laughs> you're in the wrong fam. The commercialism, the paganism... Okay, so I want to I want to address this this morning because there there were a few people that were concerned. I got some emails, you know, no one angry with me, but just like, should we cancel out all Christmas Eve services at the bridge and the Christmas family service and no Christmas decorations? Do we get away from it? Listen, let, let's be real clear. First of all, first thing to know, Christmas is not a biblical holiday. You will not find it in the scriptures. Wait, wait, Matthew and and, and Luke, they have the the birth story. I know the story's there. I know the true story of the birth of Jesus. I know the prophecies about the birth of Jesus. But never once in the Scriptures are we commanded or mandated to celebrate Christmas. We do that. We've chosen to do it. For the first 300 years, the church did not celebrate Christmas. It was not a thing. It just wasn't in the culture. It wasn't recognized. We can trace back the first recognition of December 25th, the first time that Christians began to say, hey, let's take this day, let's make December 25th Christ Mass, the Christ Ascent Day, and on that day we'll recognize the birth of Jesus. First time they did that was in 336 A.D. You see, it's written in a list of Roman bishops, these words appeared, 25 December, Natus Christus in Bethlehem Judei. In other words, in the Latin, it would be translated December 25th, Christ born in Bethlehem, Judah. It's the earliest recorded commemoration 
of Christmas as a celebration or a commemoration on December 25th. So it's not in the Bible. It was not practiced by the early church. That is Christmas. So the question is, well, if it's not biblical, then should we celebrate it at all? You know what else is not biblical? Birthdays. So mark those off. Mother's Day is not a biblical holiday. And while you mothers may be disappointed, most of the fathers are going, because I like miss that every other year. <laughs> other holidays, it was the 4th of July is not a biblical holiday. It's a good one. It's not a biblical one. Veterans Day. Can't find that in scriptures where we, except for the one veteran, Jesus Christ, where we are to celebrate or take a day off. Labor Day. I mean, all of these American holidays or Western holidays, they're not in the scriptures either. Does that mean we don't celebrate them? Here's the better question about Christmas. Would Jesus celebrate any holiday that's not biblically or scripturally mandated? It was the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev. Turn in your Bibles back to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And as you're turning there on the 25th of Kislev, which is in the wintertime, in fact, this year the 25th of Kislev on the Hebrew calendar is December 2nd. So it always falls, Kislev, right around our December time frame. And on the 25th day of that month, on that day, Jesus was in Jerusalem for a celebration. How do you know? John chapter 10, verse 22. Tells us at that time the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So there he is, Jesus in Jerusalem, celebrating, get this, commemorating, don't miss this, a non-biblical holiday, the Feast of Dedication, also called the Festival of Lights, also called Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Did he spin the dreidel? I don't know. Did he eat the potato pancakes? I'm not sure. But he was there in Jerusalem celebrating, commemorating that holiday. My friends, that date, that holiday, commemorates the eight-day feast of the conquering of the Greeks, the Seleucids, under Antiochus Epiphanes, right back around 165-166 B.C. They began to celebrate annually what took place eight days. Why is it an eight-day feast? You, You who know history or know anything about Judaism understand this. That the menorah, the lampstand in the temple, needed to be lit. So they lit the lampstand. Once they had driven out Antiochus Epiphanes, this, this pagan, and he had really messed things up. He spattered pig soup all over the inside of the temple to, to, de, to desecrate it. Well, they cleaned it up, they consecrated it, they anointed what they needed to, and they relit the lampstand, and suddenly, <clears throat> we don't have any oil for the lampstand. It's going to take eight days to consecrate appropriately, correctly, the right oil for the lampstand. And the lampstand's going to go out. And if it goes out, oh, we're in trouble. And as the story goes, for eight days, the lamps kept burning. So Jews today celebrate Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, Festival of Lights. But God never told Israel to celebrate it. Is that a bad thing? No, they just chose to. They chose to commemorate God's faithfulness to them, His protections of them. And they would celebrate it, and they do to this very day, Hanukkah, and Jesus did too. He was there at the feast. 
In fact, what you could say happened is that Jesus conscripted the celebration for His own purposes. He made it His own. He made it about Himself. Remember that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What a great place for the light of the world to be at the festival of lights. And if you continue in the passage there, verse 24, He's in the temple, there for the feast, and the Jews gathered around Him and were saying to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, Mashiach, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them and said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus declaring there His divinity. Well, the Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. And Jesus answered them saying, I showed you many good works from the Father. Uh, For which one of them are you stoning Me? And the Jews said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Question answered. If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And He did. And they wouldn't believe. But Jesus had this marvelous way of taking the common and making it about Himself. He did it in the parables all the time, right? He would take a common daily thing, things that people were used to, customs that they understood, and He would recast it in terms of Himself. He made it about Himself. So what do we do with Christmas? We make it all about Jesus. We celebrate Jesus. And that celebration, I have no problem with whatsoever. Buy the tree, prop it up, light that baby up, and celebrate Jesus Christ. Because that's what we are here for. That's that's what this life is about. Don't get all wrapped up (laughs) in fearful legalism. People do that. I've seen so many Christians, you know, you're saved by grace and then you immediately return to law. Well, we can't do this and we can't do that and we shouldn't do that and we shouldn't do this and it's all shoulds and oughts and do's and don'ts and that's not Jesus. He's grace and freedom and opportunity to have pure hearts who love Jesus Christ. Don't get grumpy about the greedy commercialism. Man, as long as the day is uncompromisingly about Jesus, in my mind, it's worth celebrating. That's the key. No compromise. No compromise. The issue wasn't the recognition of the birth of Jesus as a commemorative event on December 25th. Hey, you know, we did the same thing. We did this recently. We replaced Halloween with our fall family festival and we had a wonderful time. We did not enjoy a pagan rituals and rites here on, this, on October 31st. We had a great time of fellowship in the name of Jesus. Celebrate Jesus. Make it about Jesus. And remember this, with all sensitivity, for those who don't want to celebrate Christmas, okay... Alright, again, it's not biblically mandated. Paul said in Romans 14, verse 5, one person regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. 
Make it about Him. No compromise means my focus is on Jesus and nothing else. And when my focus is in the right place, when my heart is pure before Him, it's not a question of spiritually replacing one holiday with another. It's a question of worldly embracing and bringing in and incorporating those things that are pagan and allowing them to continue in their false motives. You know, to to take prayers for a pagan god and say, we're not going to do that anymore. Now we're going to pray to a saint. See, I've got a big problem with that because that is not scriptural. We are to pray to and through Jesus Christ. To the Father, through the Son. That's how you get to the Father. To pray for Mary. To pray to angels. We are never encouraged to do that. And that's what began to happen. It was a, it was a spirit of compromise. And that's entirely different than conversion. You know, to convert the holiday into something that honors and uplifts Jesus. To transform, if you will, or redeem worldly customs or values into godly ones. But in that case, the worldly customer value is being changed into a godly value and not just being brought in as is. That was the problem of compromise. Bringing things in and allowing them to stay as they were and the church looking more Roman rather than Rome looking like the church. See the difference? Does your Christmas celebration look pagan? Is that the heart? Is that the attitude? And by the way, if you're still worried about the Christmas tree, then there's something I remember every single year as I struggle with the lights and ribbons and garlands and try to put that thing together and plug this into that and the lights on the backside won't work so you're shaking that tree, you know, and the kids are just, you know, clearing the room. I actually don't do that. I'm sure some of you do. But no, when, you're, when, I, when I'm setting up the tree, I, I have this thought every year. And it's Galatians 3.13 which reminds us that the Bible speaks of another tree. Fastened by nails, wreathed in blood, decorated with a single broken body. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I hope that helps. Merry Christmas. <laughs> now turn back to Revelation because we, we have some gifts to unwrap. Revelation 2.17 To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. He says, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Hmm, mysterious, enigmatic. I love how God does this here in this place. You see, the Lord is not above using signs and symbols and even mystery to draw out our curiosity. To excite our emotions. I I think we talked about this, but if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and He sent and communicated it by His angel to His bondservant John. The word communicated there is semano, which literally translates signified, signified. The communication was through signs and pictures and types that then John writes down and translates and helps us to understand. Scriptures help us to understand. But God will sometimes use these wrapped things to show us what's coming. So He gives three gifts here in this postscript. 
And as with each letter, Jesus says with each of these gifts, to Him, I will, I will, I will give. I will give. I told you this, I believe, last week, that the I will is future active. That is, these are gifts that keep on giving. These are not gifts that have a span of time and then they end or are given on the day and then they break and the next morning everybody has a blue Christmas because every gift is already broken. These are gifts that are eternal and ongoing and they last for the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. And I had honestly never thought of it in these terms before that when He gives these gifts, like the tree of life in the letter to Ephesus, or the crown of life for Smyrna, or these three gifts here to Pergamos, when He offers, when He gives these gifts, they continue to give. They continue to be employed. Throughout all eternity, these will be wonderful, useful gifts. Three of them. But we got to look a little more closely at these three because they are interesting. The first gift, hidden manna. Hidden manna. What's that all about? Keep your finger here and go all the way back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16. The hidden manna. Many of you have heard about manna. This is different. This is not just manna. It's hidden manna. But listen to how the story begins. And it's interesting to me because it's Exodus 16, verse 2, which says the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They're grumbling. They're whining. They're complaining. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the pots of meat, And we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. How silly. How typically human. God delivers us, brings us out, and all we can do is whine about our current circumstances. This is just not good enough, God. Well, the Lord might say to you, you might say to me, I've I've got you on a journey here. journey's not over yet. Can I tell you all, we will not know total satisfaction until we're with Jesus. Don't expect it. Life may be hard. You're going to have wilderness experiences. You're going to have time where you're feeling a little bit of a hunger pain. And you're thinking, what is this, Lord? He's got you. Great is your faithfulness. Oh God, my Father. Well, they whined and complained. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm going to crush them like bugs. No, He says, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Test them. There's some faithfulness going on, but part of the faithfulness is He's drawing out faith. He says on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the sons of Israel at at evening, you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord for He hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? I love that. Moses is saying, don't grumble at me. Don't shoot the messenger. Skip down to verse 14. Watch this. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw, they said to one another, What is it? 
And they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. Well, the sons of Israel did so. Some gathered much, some gathered little. Note how that works. God knows exactly what your household needs. And in this fellowship, some households gather much. And other households gather little. Don't worry about it. God knows what you need. He will give you what you need. He will provide. He's the source of provision. Well, it goes on to say, where are we? What verse are we in here? 18. And they measured it with an omer, and he who gathered much had no excess. And he who gathered little had no lack. See, that's God's economy. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. But, watch this, here's the test. Moses says in verse 19, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Surprise, surprise. And some left part of it until morning. And it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Well, they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now again, most of you have heard something of the manna story in the wilderness. But this manna, this this gift that Jesus offers here is not the same. That manna was out there for everyone to see. This is hidden manna. Hidden manna. This is not obvious in terms of what it is. We'll skip down to verse 31 of Exodus 16. Which says, the house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. And then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded, let an omerful of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omerful of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And suddenly the obvious manna became hidden manna. You see, it was in a jar in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. The only person who ever even went into the Holy Holies was the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur. And he didn't open up the Ark of the Covenant we have stories to talk about what happened when they open up the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it's pure Indiana Jones stuff. Heads exploding and people dying. They didn't open it. It was hidden manna. Kept away there in the Ark. Interesting. What does that tell us? What, what is it about the hiddenness of the manna? Hey, listen, just as the manna was kept hidden in the Ark of the Covenant... So the hidden manna is something marvelous, something hidden, deep in the language of the prophets that that even the prophets themselves didn't fully comprehend or understand. Something hidden, hidden manna. 1 Peter 1.10 says, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The hidden manna, Messiah. Messiah. There's some of this hidden manna. Jesus came on the scene. Listen to what He had to say about the hidden manna. This is John chapter 6, if you want to skip over there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth Gospel in the New Testament. And in John chapter 6, Jesus had just performed one of the most stunning messianic miracles of His ministry. 
He fed 5,000 people. He fed them fish and what? Bread. And when the people saw it, they were blown away because they saw it as the sign of Messiah. Why? Because no one had brought bread to feed that many people since the days of Moses. No one brought manna, but suddenly Jesus is breaking bread and they're passing around bread and there's just more and more and they pick up 12 basketfuls when they're done and the people were worshiping God and ready in that moment to make Jesus king. Here's Messiah. He's here. The one who feeds us. And Jesus goes to the other side of the lake. They run around the lake and they meet Him on the other side. And Jesus says, you're not here for for the bread that truly feeds you. You just want a free lunch. And then He starts to talk about bread. And in verse 32 of John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said, Lord, always give us this bread. And He said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me will not hunger. He who believes in Me will never thirst. It's Me, the hidden manna. Hidden away in the Ark of the Testimony. By the way, the Ark is itself a testimony of the Messiah. A picture of the coming Messiah. And here's the manna within the Ark. And this is Jesus. Skip down to verse 48. He says again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The hidden manna is Jesus Himself. And He says to you, I'll give you some of Myself. To him who overcomes, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. The hidden manna, this gift, is a gift of intimacy. A little over 30 years ago now, I married Sharon. I gave her myself. I said, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you such as I am. You know, and, and it was the gift of intimacy. She did the same for me. We walked together. We know things about each other nobody else knows. Nobody else should know. Right? Things that are between us, you know that in a marriage. And, and faulty and flawed sometimes as marriages can be, still the picture is the same. I'm going to give you myself. I'm giving you of the hidden manna. And my response, your response, ought to be Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Intimacy. I'm going to give you the hidden manna. That which was hidden for so long but now has been revealed in the bread of life, the bread from heaven, the Christ sent Jesus Himself. Second gift, the white stone. The white stone. Now this sounds right out of Lord of the Rings, but it's not. The white stone. It's more mysterious than the hidden manna because we can't find biblical precedent for it. You can't go back in the Scriptures. And that's, by the way, the best thing to do if you're uncertain about something in the New Testament, go looking, because if you can find a parallel in the Bible, you'll find understanding. You'll see what this really means. Well, the white stone, we don't have anything in the Hebrew Scriptures. Nothing that comes before to to explain it to us. But if we look at first century historical customs, maybe we'll get some clues. 
This idea of a white stone. Let me give you three good possibilities. Number one, a voting stone. A voting stone, white or black, they would use these for up or down voting on an issue or on a a candidate. If you're for the candidate, drop in the white stone. If you're against the candidate, you drop in the black stone. Or you can use them for separate candidates. I think Broward County, Florida could use this process. Red stones and blue stones, drop it in the bucket and we'll count them up and see who the winner is. Then you're not going to have any hanging chads or, or misdirected ballots. So it was a voting stone. That doesn't work here. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a white stone. It's not a voting stone because the kingdom of Christ is not a democracy. The kingdom of Christ is a dictatorship or or a sovereign monarchy by the authority under the rule and reign of Jesus. We're not voting in the kingdom, gang. He's making the call and we're going to be good with that. So a voting stone doesn't really fit the picture here. What about, what about a judgment stone? Because again, in the same way, black and white stones would be used uh, for a jury to render judgment on a criminal, on someone standing trial. The black stone, guilty. The white stone, get this, acquittal. Justified. Now that now we're starting to sound a little closer to faith, right? The white stone, stone of acquittal, stone of justification. That's it, right? I, I don't think so. Here's the problem with that idea. While it's a beautiful idea, the white stone being a stone of acquittal and Jesus giving you the white stone, giving me the white stone. Problem is, well, I've already been justified. I'm already acquitted. Why would he give me that then when I am justified by the blood of Christ now? Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, and justification is a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So I've already been justified, I've already been acquitted, and if this white stone is supposed to be the stone of acquittal, it'd be like getting the same gift twice. You ever have that happen on Christmas morning? You open up a package and you get this really cool gift, and you open up another package, and it's the same thing. I've already got that reindeer sweater. Well, what do I need a second one for? Or you try and play it off. You know, one relative gives you something, another relative gives you the same exact gift, and you're like, oh, this is wonderful. Thanks. I'll be taking this back in two days. Why would he give me something he's already given me? No. No, I think I think there's a better explanation for the white stone, and we find it right there in first century Greco-Roman culture. And that is, they would take white stones and they would engrave them or inscribe them and these were called tesserae. The tesserae. And there were different kinds of tesserae. There was the tesserae convivialis, which was a white stone that literally functioned like our cards of invitation or tickets of admission to a feast or a banquet. The white stone. I'll give you a white stone. An invitation, if you will, to celebration. Even better, if we're down this line of thinking, was the tesserae hospitalis, which were small white stone badges of either friendship or, even better, alliance. They were access. Access, if you will, to a lasting relationship or position. What I'm saying here is the white stone is, I believe, a gift of invitation. The hidden manna is a gift of intimacy. The white stone, a gift of invitation. A champion in Olympic Games would be given sometimes this white stone, the tesserae hospitalis, 
like keys to the city. And they could move about freely throughout the city. In other words, they became citizens with an all-access pass. And that's a great picture of the white stone. See, Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. He says, For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Got your white stone? You get in, you get out, you move it around the kingdom, you've got your white stone, all access. Jesus even said in John 10.9, Hey, I'm the door. And if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture, all access. By the way, what color is that stone again? White. What color is the great throne of Revelation 20? White. Interesting. Is there a connection? I don't know, but from the stone to the throne, we've got access. The white stone of invitation, the white stone of access to move about freely. And even now in Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father. Amen? The Hebrew writer, Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A stone to the throne. What a gift! Free access to move about the kingdom. Part of the kingdom. Flashing that white stone wherever I go. What a gift. Intimacy. Invitation. But there's one more gift here. For the name written on the stone is a gift in and of itself. He says, I will give him a new name. A new name. Third gift. Jesus always does that. He loves to give new names. He said, Shimon, you're going to be Petrus. Sandy was what Shimon meant. You're going to become Rocky, Petrus. He renames Peter. Nicknames him, if you will. Saul became Paul. Or, or James and John. Yaakov and John. Jesus looked at the brothers and he said, You guys are hotheads. I'm calling you Boanerges. Which means sons of thunder. These are the two bros who wanted to call down fire on a city for not welcoming Jesus. Well, you're Boanerges, bros. Broenergies. <laughs> so he nicknames those he loves. He, he gives kind of pen names or pet names to those who he cares about. But, but this is special. Something about these new nicknames. It's a nickname only you and Jesus will know. Only the two of you to share. You know what that means? That means in heaven and for all eternity, you and Jesus are going to have an inside joke. Or an inside thought. You will have, for all of us here gathered this morning, for all of the followers of Jesus for 2,000 years, you will have something specific between you and Jesus no one else has. That's marvelous. That's intimacy. Isn't that? An invitation. And this this new name. I, I have affectionate names for Cheryl. Names that I will never use on any of you. You'll thank me. She has a few affectionate names for me. And if some of you tried to call me by some of Cheryl's names for me, I'd probably be insulted or a little weirded out. I mean, someone comes up and says, hey, sugar-coated lima bean, I'd be like, whoa, whoa, bro. You know, or honey-baked ham. I wouldn't use that with you. 
come to think of it, I wouldn't use that with Cheryl either. But seriously, a new name, an affectionate name that's just between you and Jesus. You know, the more I think about that, the more I think, I can't, I can't wait to hear it. I want a new name. See, my name's getting worn out. Not just because of my age, but because of my life and my reputation. My name's getting worn out. There are people who know me, or think they know me, and they have way too many positive things to say about me. There are people who know me, or they think they know me, and they have way too many negative things to say about me. We all do that with names. You hear a name, and immediately you ascribe a personality, a thought, or a behavior, or what that person did to you, or what they did for you. Good or bad, we hear the name. And the longer you live, the more, my friends, that stuff piles up behind you. The more you realize there are folks on this planet who know stuff about you, or at least think they do, and they ascribe things to your name, and I think, oh. Remember when you were kids and you'd go to elementary school and like you'd finish and you'd have summer break off, and you actually thought when you went back to school in the fall that you could be a new person? That, that now, this year... New reputation, everything's fresh and new. I mean, it wasn't totally true, but you thought that way. In this case, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name, a special name, a name between you and me. And the Bible tells us, Isaiah 65, 15, my servants will be called by another name. Even better. Proverbs 22, verse 1. It's not up up there. You might want to just note this one. Proverbs 22, verse 1 that says, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver or gold. Jesus has a good name for you. A new name. And that name, in all the freshness and the redemption and, and the cleanness of heaven, where all old things have been made new, the new name is a gift of a new identity. Identity. So in the hidden manna, we have this intimacy. And with the white stone, we have invitation. And with the new name, we have a gift of identity. And frankly, I get kind of amped up just thinking about the gifts. I'm like a child on Christmas morning. The more we read these letters and the more we hear about the gifts, the tree of life, the crown of life, the hidden manna, the white stone, the new name, I'm saying, bring it on, Lord. This is going to be a good Christmas. Because Christ was sent. And He gives good things. He's a giver of good gifts. And on that bright morning, He's going to bring those. Behold, he says, I'm coming and my reward is with me. Or even better, as God said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, I am your exceedingly great reward. It's me. What will that day be like when the gifts are given? Gifts, by the way, purchased at the tree of Calvary to be enjoyed into and through all eternity. And who gets these gifts? Note that in verse 17. To Him who overcomes. Read it in the context, my friends. It's not just to Him who generically overcomes. It's certainly not to Him who overcomes Christmas. To Him who overcomes what? Compromise. Compromise. Overcoming compromise. I will not compromise Jesus Christ in this world. 
I will not conscript the things of this world to replace aspects of Christian faith. My faith will always be about Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or again, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6.17, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Let's pray. Oh, there's so much ahead. So much ahead, Father. And You keep reminding us of the things which are to come. So much that is out there for us to look forward to. And to know that You are planning a great celebration. A feast, a festival, far beyond our imagination. Beyond anything that we celebrate in this world today. Thank You for the gifts, but most of all, Lord, thank You for the gift of Jesus come into this world Christ sent and dwelling among us the gift of the blood and the body sacrifice the gift of the resurrection and the sweet gift of His promised return we thank You Holy Spirit would You move among us now and draw us near in intimacy to our Lord Jesus for it's in His name that we pray Amen Amen